Hello and welcome to Voicebox, KALW's eclectic weekly music series all about the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. Thanks for listening in. March is Women's History Month and a great way to pay homage to this important annual event is by taking a look at some of the wonderful ways in which women have contributed to the vocal arts. On tonight's show, I'm delighted that the Bay Area-based vocalist and songwriter Pamela Rose has joined me in the studio to talk about Wild Women of Song, a fascinating project that she's working on that's gathering steam this month. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for coming into KALW this evening. I'm honoured to be here. Hi, Chloe. Hi. So tell us about your Wild Women of Song project. What is it and why did you start it? What it is is a multimedia jazz concert, actually. Um, We pay tribute to various women who wrote those really early jazz and blues standards. Um, Many of these songs are familiar to us, but I just did not know their names. And that was the names of the writers. And that was sort of surprising to me. So I set out on this mission. We've been collecting photo archives, writing bios. And the show format is that we um, do these segments where we uh, show you pictures of the women, talk about their lives and their times, and then we play the music. And when you say we, that's you and your band or you and yes. some other kinds of collaborators? Or? It, it is my band, but it has now become something quite collaborative, too. Mm-hmm. There are some really phenomenal women musicians and men musicians in the band. Tammy Hall on piano and Ruth Davies on bass and Kristen Strom on saxophone, all three of whom are pretty well-known local um, educators and performers in their own right. It started as a recording that I did. I I released a a CD last year called Wild Women of Song, Great Gal Composers of the Jazz Era. And it really was just a theme to, um, you know, make a new record. I thought, well, that'll be great. I'll just do some songs that were written by women. But when I started to research the material, I became so fascinated with their life stories. Some of these broads were phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, we're going to hear about some of their life stories later on. They are an amazing bunch of women. So therefore, it became this much bigger project then. It did. And can you tell us briefly um, about these live concert events that you've got coming up around this project? Yes, we have two coming up. Um, One is at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. That's a really interesting project. It's a part of our show. We're going to be doing some of the songs and we are going to have a panel discussion co-sponsored by SF Jazz, talking about the role of African-American and Jewish women in those early days of songwriting. Okay, and then there's another concert too, right? Yes, the big show. The big show is Wednesday, March 16th at Yoshi's in San Francisco at 8 p.m. Okay, well, let's kick off with one of Pamela's interpretations of a great track by a woman songsmith of the jazz era. Here's I Don't Know Enough About You by Peggy Lee. The track comes from Pamela's Wild Women of Song album. I know a little bit about a lot of things But I don't know enough about you Just when I think you're mine You try a different line And baby, what can I do? I read the latest news No buttons on my shoes 
but baby, I'm confused about... If you've just joined us, welcome. You're tuned into Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. On tonight's show, we're exploring women composers of the jazz era with Pamela Rose, a Bay Area-based vocalist and songwriter. We just heard Pamela performing I Don't Know Enough About You, a song written in 1945 by Peggy Lee. The track comes from Pamela's album Wild Women of Song. Pamela, speaking of not knowing enough, it strikes me, as you said earlier, that there are a ton of famous songs that were written by women composers in the jazz era, but we don't necessarily think of those early years of the last century as offering many opportunities for women composers, and we don't really know who many of these people were. So on your album, for example, there's a recording of the song A Fine Romance, Mm -hmm. and everyone knows that Jerome Kern wrote that song, which came out in 1936, but not many people know that Kern actually co-wrote it with Dorothy Fields. Why is it that, with the exception of Peggy Lee, the women composers featured on your album have mostly been forgotten today? Yeah, it is a really interesting question. And actually, Dorothy Fields is better known, but not well known. Um, We do a little bit in the show where I say, okay, how many of you have heard of Dorothy Fields? And I'll get a smattering of applause. And then I say, well, clap your hands if you've heard of these songs and we start rattling them off mm-hmm. you know on the sunny side of the street and oh, that I was can't one of hers. Gi- yeah, wow. I can't give you anything but love hey big spender oh my if goodness. my friends could see me now just the way you look tonight yeah she co-wrote she was a lyricist um, and she's my only lyricist actually in the bunch but what a lyricist and um, she had such a phenomenal catalog of songs to her name and she was asked later in life why they, why we didn't know more about the women songwriters, because they really were there. Mm-hmm. Um, there were not as many as men, but mm-hmm. that was an area that seemed to be slightly open to women. Oh, I see. And she would say, well, you know, frankly, if you want to be a songwriter, you have to be out there hustling yourself. And she didn't think that women were made that way. And she probably had a little bit of a point. You know, it's like uh, with any industry, you sort of have to be out there clubbing it up with the guys and drinking with the guys and hanging with the guys and smoking with the guys. And if you wanted to have a family, if you uh, or just didn't weren't a party animal, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be hard to make sure that everybody knew who you were. And Uh, I also don't think that women, um, it it was difficult for them to shine their own star. Right. It was easier or they were more inclined, you think, to kind of hide behind men, you think? I think that they were inclined to do the job. I see. You know, they wrote because they were, there were some really passionate musicians in this group. And... um, then there were some who, frankly, that was the job that they could get in the Depression. Um, a lot of women were taught to play a musical instrument, even if they didn't get to go to college. Mm-hmm. Before radio, before the phonograph, you were part of the in-home entertainment. Right. So when suddenly, when fortunes turned around and people really had to go out and get a job, there were quite a few women who did get jobs playing music um, and being song pluggers. And it and it was a, a wonderful little break in opportunity, I think, that they could get out there and become composers for popular songs. Well, we just heard a song by Peggy Lee, and she's probably the most famous of all the composers we're going to focus on on tonight's show. Um, she's commonly considered as one of the first singer-songwriters. How did Peggy Lee break the mould in terms of how songs had been produced before she came along? 
She just was one of those people that wasn't afraid to do anything, I think. Peggy Lee was a wonderful spirit and very strong. But um, it happened, and I guess I think I relate most to Peggy Lee because the way that she writes songs is very similar to the way I think I write songs. Uh She was married to a guitarist, uh, Dave Barbour. They both had been in Betty Goodman's band together. And she was home, having had a a baby, Mm -hmm. and she started humming a song and making up words and finding, she had a very strong melody in mind, and then she got together with her husband and said, let's let's write this together. Mm -hmm. So he figured out the chords that supported the melody that she had, and... um, they put it out there. She wasn't interested in singing at the time. Um, it was picked up by Maybell Merriweather, and then Sarah Vaughn recorded it as well. So suddenly, um, she had a new career on her hands, and then uh, she was being asked to put out a solo album. And every album she made after that point, and she had, I think, like 40 albums that came out, uh, every one of them had three or four originals on it. So she was quite, she really loved to write. Let's listen now to a couple of different takes on Peggy Lee songs. First up is the songwriter herself with Don't Smoke in Bed. Mm. And then we'll hear Bing Crosby with It's a Good Day. Weeks ago, Miss Peggy Lee wrote a song and introduced it on the Philco show. It became quite a big hit. Everybody's singing it. I don't know why I shouldn't give it a riffle. Here I go. Made it. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song. And it's a good day for moving along. Yes, it's a good day. How can anything be wrong? A good day from morning till night. And it's a good day for shining your shoes. Yes, it's a good day for losing the blues Everything to gain and nothing to lose A good day from morning till night I said to the sun This is Voice Box on KALW. We're talking tonight about female composers from Tin Pan Alley with chanteuse Pamela Rose, who's immersed herself in the world of these women with her Wild Women of Song project. We just heard two interpretations of songs by Peggy Lee, perhaps the most renowned musician of the bunch we're looking at tonight. First up was Peggy Lee singing Don't Smoke in Bed, and then we heard Bing Crosby with It's a Good Day. Lee was a gorgeous, expressive singer as well as a songwriter. And the same is true of the next composer whom we're going to look at tonight, Alberta Hunter. Here's the formidable composer at the grand old age of 87, singing her song, My Castle's Rockin'. On up some night, my castle's rockin' You can blow your top, cause everything's free 
on the top floor, the third door to the rear. I swear you'll always find me. Stuff is there, the chicks fairly romp with glee. Don't worry about a thing, cause I'm laying it on the line for protection. Tell him cats down. This is Voice Box, and that was Alberta Hunter singing her song My Castle's Rockin'. The track comes from the album Downhearted Blues, live at the cookery. I'm in the studio with Pamela Rose, a local singer and songwriter who's been working on a project to celebrate the music of women composers of the jazz era. Pamela, tell us about Alberta Hunter. She's the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't she? Well, she she is, and she's also the story of American music. You know, you can follow her and see what happened to so many um, women. But uh, I just want to say, having listened to that track, don't you wish you were right there at the cookery listening oh, to her? She was yes. so full of life. It's amazing to think that she was 87 when she recorded that. Yes, yes. Now, it was interesting because she started, you know, she ran away from home when she was 14. She was determined to better her life in any way. These people were, you know, she was dirt poor. And she started out peeling potatoes and singing. And in a a few years in Chicago, she just had a way of, wasn't a naturally strong singer, but just had a way of putting over a song. In fact, W.C. Handy uh, says that he raced across town to hand her an ink-fresh St. Louis blues to debut because if Alberta did it, everyone would love it. And um, she started writing a song one day. And uh, she had a piano player friend, a woman by the name of Lovey Austin, who uh, should be more famous than she is. And together they wrote this song, they copywrote it, they got it published, and uh, she started performing it. People would pack the clubs in Chicago to hear Alberta Hunter sing the song, which was Downhearted Blues. Later that year, Bessie Smith made a record of that song. It sold 780,000 copies in six months. And it actually changed the music industry. People ran out and bought gramophones just to hear this song. So uh, the Smithsonian called it one of the 100 most significant songs of the 20th century. And all Alberta ever saw from that song back then was she got $368, which is sadly typical. I hope this isn't a common theme uh, this evening, these women who are getting stiffed out of of money. Well, you know, but Alberta, Alberta said, you reap what you sow. And she truly, she traveled all over the world. Um, She did not stay in Chicago. She did not stay in in New York. She moved to Paris, uh, where a lot of African-American artists were embraced in a way that they were not here in the States. And given that confidence, when she came back to New York and kept performing and uh, put together her own troupe of performers, she, she for, like, for about a dozen years, traveled all over the world, from Cairo to Spain to everywhere, um, and finally gave up when she was about 50 years old. Uh, she decided to, she just saw that she wasn't making much money. And there's a very famous little sideline is that she became a nurse. She lied and said she was 38 years old. She um, took the nurse's exam, you know, got, got a job as a nurse's aide in a, in a New York hospital. And for the next, um, I think it was uh, 32 years, she worked as a nurse. And nobody knew that she had been the Alberta hunter. Incredible. And one day... Um, some John Hammond said, whatever happened to Alberta Hunter? And he kind of looked her up at the phone book and he discovered that she was right there and he called her in for a recording session with some other uh, blues legends. They, it was such a big success that um, a few years later, Barney Josephson of the cookery said, 
called her up and said, listen, I'd really like you to come and play a month at the cookery. And she was 82, I think, at that time. Um, she said, all right, I don't know. I had, it's going to take me a while to do this. You know, I'm not sure I could last a month. And she ended up playing there for almost two years straight. They wouldn't let her go. And then she was a sensation and traveled again all over the country. She, and I saw her play when she must have been about 85 years old in Santa Monica. Uh, and I was just entranced by her. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, let's listen now to the song that made Hunter a huge star, his downhearted blues, which the singer Bessie Smith turned into a hit in 1923. tuned into Voice Box on KALW. I'm in the studio tonight with Pamela Rose, a singer who's been exploring female composers of the jazz era with her Wild Women of Song project. We just heard the great blues singer Bessie Smith interpreting Downhearted Blues by Alberta Hunter, the second of the six composers that we're focusing on tonight. So, Pamela, how would you approach singing a song by a composer like Alberta Hunter versus versus Peggy Lee, for example? I mean, they're both very different in their styles. I have to admit that there's a certain amount of channeling that I I try not to do in some way because, of course, as a singer, you want to be you. But when we do the show, there's so much talking about these women and their personalities. I think I can't help it. Doing an Alberta Hunter song, I do it with full throttle blues feeling. That's the way. And... um, but uh, and Peggy, you know, it was all sultry, all um, purring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? She's she had a way. The interesting thing about those two writers is that they were also singers. Yes, and I do think that singers write for write in a way that is very friendly to singers, other singers. Mm-hmm. So you find singing the songs of those two composers easier then than singing the songs of some of the other composers who weren't singers yeah. that we're going to hear later tonight? That's a great question. That is, come to think of it, that is exactly true. And I hadn't really codified it for myself, but that is exactly right. I think that these women composers, Ida Cox is another one that we do in the show, that we do at Yoshi's, and um, we will close the show with her. And all of them were also singers. And I think that they wrote in a way that was comfortable for their voices. But it does turn out that that's so much more, that's also very easy for most singers. This is Voice Box on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. Hace mucho tiempo, nunca olvidaré el momento en que yo te conocí. Mírame, pues no hay nada más profundo ni 
más grande en este mundo que el cariño que te di. Here on tonight's Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman, and my special guest, Pamela Rose, we're exploring some of Tin Pan Alley's most prodigious female composers. We just heard two great interpretations of songs by Maria Greber, a composer who not many of us know today. The first track was Hurame, Promise Me, and it was sung by Andrea Bocelli. And the second song, sung by Libertad Lamarck, was Tipi Tipi Tin. There were Maria Greber cultural clubs all over Cuba. People would come and talk about, read uh, poetry of the day, and they would start by playing a few of their songs. They loved her so. And she wrote a lot of American popular songs. She wrote for Benny Goodman. She wrote for Broadway. She wrote for the ballet, um, light opera. This music just poured out of her. But um, the thing that she really was committed to doing was to introduce to our North American ears her version of the beautiful boleros and folk songs that she grew up with. So she was kind of a hero all over Latin America for um, introducing the world to this music. Um, she had a kind of a thin, warbly sort of voice, um, but it didn't matter. If she gave a concert, it was always a sellout. And she did. She pe- appeared at Carnegie Hall a couple of times, um, and it would always sell out. Her albums would, would sell out. People loved her with a a true sense of like a folk hero almost. They just loved her. Well, let's move on now to our next composer of the evening. We're going to talk about Kay Swift. Mm. Like Maria Greber, Kay Swift was lucky enough to receive a formal music education, right? They both had a a classical training, I think. Yes, that's right. Um, And Kay Swift went to school at Juilliard. Maria Greber, where did she go to school? Well, actually, she studied in Paris under Claude Debussy. Ah, right. She studied some pretty serious composition. She thought she was going to compose opera in the beginning. And then she fell in love with popular songs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so, yeah, it's interesting because obviously Kay Swift, too, went down this sort of serious classical music conservatory route and ended up elsewhere. Um, What do you think made these composers with classical backgrounds like Greben and Swift turn to popular song? She married well. Mm -hmm. She married a banker by the name of James Warburg, and they moved to the Upper East Side, and they used to have these fabulous salon um, when the children were at bed. And would, they would have Dorothy Parker and F. Scott Fitzgerald come to their home and mm-hmm. um, all these great thinkers. <laughs> yes, it was. It was just like something out of a novel. And one night, George Gershwin came to the party. Uh-huh. And the two of them fell so deeply in love, and they were truly each other's romantic and musical soulmates. Wow. So he introduced her to what he thought really 
to the blues, which he mm-hmm. was fascinated by. Mm-hmm. He had just written Rhapsody in Blue and um, was just in love with this particular idiom. And she became so fascinated, she thought, well, what if I put my hand to this? So she, she actually got a job on his recommendation with Rogers and Hart. She was the uh, rehearsal pianist for Connecticut Yankee. And then she started writing songs for Broadway. In a really interesting twist, her favorite lyricist was none other than her husband, uh-huh. her banker husband, oh. James, who wrote under a pseudonym. So it's a little complicated. I can imagine. Personally. And, and also it's very fascinating to hear that um, George Gershwin wrote um, a Broadway musical, OK, um, yes. which uh, was, was written sort of in honor of, of Kay Swift yes. and somehow followed her story a little bit. They right? were quite a duo. And I should, the Gershwin uh, Foundation here in San Francisco told me that her handwriting can be found on almost all of his manuscripts from the day they met. He, you know, she really lent her more sophisticated arranging and score. She was quite a good uh, orchestrator. And this, he wasn't educated in that way. Mm-hmm. So we could perhaps, you know, give some of his phenomenal success with some things like Porgy and Bess, which was quite sophisticated, to K-Swift. Wow. Well, um, I think it would be fun to hear a little clip from um, OK by George Gershwin, um, which was written in, K's, in, in K-Swift's honour. Let's have a little snippet now um, from the song Do, Do, Do. Um, this song is going to be sung by Gertrude Lawrence, and the recording comes from Gertrude Lawrence with Do 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 from the George Gershwin musical OK, written to honour Kay Swift. The composer had a a very intimate relationship with Mm -hmm. uh, George Gershwin. And here we are with Pamela Rose. I'm Chloe Veltman and on tonight's Voice Box we're discussing women composers of the jazz era. Now... Kay Swift um, was an example of a composer who came from this sort of quite highfalutin conservatory background and then seemed to somehow turn her back on it and, and move into into writing popular songs. Do you think it was possible for women at that time to maintain dual careers in classical music and, and pop music? Or was she frowned upon by the uh, classical music establishment when she went more in Gershwin's direction? Well, she was... Even though she married well, she came from a sort of what she called shabby gentility. Her mm-hmm. her father was an opera critic, and they didn't have much money, but they really loved music. And she had a phenomenal talent. And Juilliard was, even though it wasn't, it, it was one of the few places at the time that actually did encourage women to um, seek a profession. So I think that she was given enormous opportunity that was unusual at the time. Hazel Scott was another pianist who was encouraged in that way at Juilliard. But um, you're right. I mean, I think that uh, I know that at that time in the 20s, 
there were a lot of attempts to straddle those two things. Mm -hmm. One of my favourite interpretations of the song um, by the composers we're looking at tonight, of all this, of all the composers, is a, K a K Swift song, um, Fine and Dandy, mm. as sung by Barbara Streisand. I'd like to play that song now. Yeah. Please forgive this platitude, but I like your attitude. You are just the kind I've had in mind Never could find Honey, I'm so keen on you I could come to lean on you Honor and obey Give you your way Do That was Fine and Dandy by Kay Swift as interpreted by Barbara Streisand. What a great version of the song that is. You're tuned into Voicebox on KALW. I'm in the studio with songwriter and vocalist Pamela Rose and we're discussing Wild Women of Song, female composers of the jazz era. Let's move on now to talking about Bernice Petcare. That's not, again, a, it's not a name that many people are familiar with today. The composer had a completely different upbringing to Kay Swift. Pamela, can you tell us about Bernice Petcare's life, please? Yeah, well, she was really um, more in the uh, living hand-to-mouth as a working musician most of her life, and I think that was true of her family as well. Peter Minton, who was a very well-known pianist uh, who used to live here in San Francisco was really helpful because he knew her pretty well and he mm -hmm. said that she had a habit of sort of burnishing her past so th th to make it sound like it was more upper class than it was but you could tell that it wasn't you know she was when she was age five she was on the vaudeville circuit mm -hmm. with her aunt she um, they never had much money having they all had to work they were working in show business in one way or another and um she did get, she said that she went to the Henshaw Conservatory of Music, but what Peter said, it was more that she really got, was given a scholarship to study voice there a little bit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but um, she was a self-taught pianist, and she loved uh, writing songs. And she was determined to write songs. So um, she kept plugging away and plugging away and hitting all the Tin Pan Alley places she could get to. Um until finally she got, she wrote a song called Starlight Help Me Find the One I Love, which turned out to be an enormous hit for Bing Crosby. Mm -hmm. From that point on, Irving Berlin hired her as one of his, he had a lot of staff writers, he had a big publishing house, and she was one of those intense song pluggers, show up every day, write a song, show up every day, write a song. The uh, this legend is that one day, a postcard arrived at her house with no other address than Bernice Petcare, Queen of Tin Pan Alley. But she wrote, right, most of the period of time that she wrote was um, really when the Depression was full on. And she had this style to her writing. It sort of played with minor and major modes. Lullaby of the Leaves, Close Your Eyes, those songs that have become just genuine jazz standards for not only singers, but for uh, jazz artists, jazz instrumentalists, because the songs are so interesting because of this... this The modality, is, it yeah, sort of shifts around it quite sh a bit. It's a, That's exactly right. 
Um, and when people asked, it was it because you know you wrote in the Depression, and she would say, "No, it's because what's sold." <laughs> you know, she had this sort of smart alecky way of talking. Uh huh. Do you like singing her songs? I mean, given the way they shift around between the major and the minor keys, I love singing her songs. I really do. They're um, powerful. She had, um, you know, writers have different strengths and some are more delicate, some are more finessed, but she had a very powerful way with the melody. And I do, I love singing her songs. Close your eyes Rest your head on my shoulder and sleep Close your eyes And I will close mine Close your eyes Let's pretend that we're both counting sheep Close your eyes This is divine Music play Something dreamy for dancing While we're here romancing on KALW. Tonight we're exploring songs by some amazing women composers of the jazz era. Singer and composer Pamela Rose is in the studio with me. She's been working on a project around these composers for the last few years. We just heard two versions of songs by Bernice Petcare, known as the Queen of Tin Pan Alley. The first was another queen, Queen Latifah, with her soulful take on Close Your Eyes. And then we heard Billy Eckstein's swinging version of Lullaby of the Leaves. Pamela, we just when while the songs were on just now, we were talking, um, it was very interesting what you were saying about the moody melodies that Petcare writes in. I mean, she's not a Jewish composer but you said you were talking about how there were a lot of of Jewish songwriters at that time and and how they seemed to respond very much to that to, to the tonality of the of the of the scales in the blues can you talk about that a little bit yeah I will and we're going to be talking about that more at the contemporary Jewish Museum too um, well you know it is interesting because the like 90 percent of the songwriters of that era of music, were Jewish or African-American, and it was a preponderance of writers. In fact, there was somebody made a joke once and said, well, they were if they weren't African-American, they were all Jewish except for Cole Porter, which is you know, <laughs> not entirely true. But, and Bernice Petka. Yeah, but, you know, it does sometimes feel that way. Yeah. And I wonder if, um, you know, the, the very quality of the blues is that it's built on a minor scale that is played over a major chord. And it is that um, a chord, a major chord with a flat seven. So that's for you musician, musical wonks out there. <laughs> um, what that means is that instead of having a sad feeling to that melody, the major chord behind it gives it a little lift. And then you add all the syncopation that came along with that early jazz era. And I actually think that a lot of these 
um, recently immigrated Jewish composers and songwriters woke up to that melody and said, that's familiar, but it's so much more wonderful. And they got very excited about it and couldn't wait to explore it. It was exploring something that was familiar to them. And yet uh, there were new horizons that were opened up. This is KLW's Voice Box. Shadows, beautiful lady, open your heart. The scene is set, the breezes sing of it. Can't you get into the swing of it, lady? Night is Young and You're So Beautiful and My Silent Love. Two songs written by the last composer we're going to focus on this evening here on Voicebox, Dana Suisse. The first track was performed by Vic Damone and the second by tonight's guest, Pamela Rose. Pamela and I are talking about Wild Women of Song, the jazz era's greatest female composers. Now, I really love both of those interpretations of Suisse's work. Damone's is so dreamy. It's the stuff of mm-hmm. old romantic movies. And I just uh, heard that uh, actually the song is used in that Mel Brooks film, <laughs> Robin Hood, Men in Tights. That's right. Which I, I uh, had forgotten about conveniently. And your take, Pamela, on My Silent Love is so intimate and sincere and very different to the very sort of lush arrangements that you usually get with uh, Suisse's songs. Can you tell us about some of Suisse's achievements uh, when she was very young, Pamela? Oh, yeah. Well, she was also, uh, she was a prodigy. And, yeah. um came out of Kansas City and her parents because they also didn't have that much money they put her out to work in vaudeville which was a what what you could do and she was a regular little kind of Mozart you know she would get up on stage when she was about eight years old and she would play and then she would take suggestions from the audience and say give me a theme and she would spontaneously compose a piece based on the themes that would either be um, whistled to her or sung to her or um, suggest in terms of uh, lyrics. And this was her act, and she did very well. Amazing. And and then she became known as the Girl Gershwin. Yes, she did. Now, how did that come about? <clears throat> well, uh, she had a mother who was very... Uh, who did really support her and believed in she, her. She wasn't a pushy stage mom. She was an actual, actually supportive. Um, Dana was pretty uh, ambitious mm-hmm. in, in and of herself. And she moved to New York to study with um, Alexander Zelotti, I think, who was one of... Uh, Oh, um, one of Liszt's pupils and was really well sought after. But when she got to New York, she got bit by what was happening, which was this new sound of blues and jazz that was coming out of... Um, she she was very excited by that sound. And so she started writing songs on two levels. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, but she was really young, and she gave a few people were were quite um, impressed with her, and she gave a few uh, concerts. Paul Whiteman commissioned her to come up with a piece, and she wrote her concerto in three rhythms, and following on a um, which. You know, she was so young and so exciting that uh, she got a lot of press, and people called her the girl Gershwin from that point on. Yeah, she wasn't even 20, right? She was point. not 20. And by the time she was 21, I want to say she was an anomaly, even in this day and age. She was a financially independent <laughs> musician and uh, really could write her own ticket. And that was kind of unusual for anybody. So the six composers we've been focusing on tonight, Peggy Lee, Alberta Hunter... Maria Greber, Kay Swift, Bernice Petker and Dana Suisse all come from very different backgrounds in a way and and approach songwriting in their own sort of vivid and unique ways. Are there any qualities that unify the music of the songwriters we've been talking about tonight for you, Pamela? I think that it's so important for us to remember that before this era of time, before the 20s, that this was a this was such a major movement in music that popular music changed so drastically once the blues entered the conversation and from blues then came jazz so um and each one of them in her own way really um embraced that and at a time when it was a little scandalous to to follow this music they were really passionate they were really feisty almost all of them. Um, They certainly wrote their own ticket. It was not easy being a woman. Uh, You had to make certain hard decisions about having a family, of course. Um, They were career women at a time when, even though necessity dictated that they had to be career women, they were supposed to also be women and not very serious about their careers. Um, But they were, and they took themselves seriously and I think that we are the better for it because they wrote quite a big chapter in the American Songbook. Well, our time on the airwaves is winding up very sadly for this week. I feel we could talk about these amazing composers for, for, for hours, really. And if you go to the website, wildwomenofsong.com, there you can find out where we're going to be appearing. We're going to be at the Monterey Jazz Festival this year and we've got some really nice things happening. And people have been so supportive um, of the project, even... It brings out musicians, it brings out lovers of music, it brings out people who just are fascinated with this era of history, with the photographs, with the stories, um, with who we are, really, as Americans, really. It's really the story of American music right there, from a feminist point of view. Superb. Well, thank you so much, Pamela, for taking the time to come into the studio tonight and chat with me about Wild Women of Song. Thank you, Chloe. To find out more about Pamela's music, please visit her website at www.pamelarose.com. And as Pamela mentioned just now, if you want to find out more about these great women composers that we've been talking about tonight, go to wildwomenofsong.com. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel. The web editor is Victoria Lim. And the membership and development director is John Bischoff. Voicebox can only exist with support from you, our listeners. So to find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make a much-needed tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. 
Don't forget that you can now listen to the latest edition of Voicebox and any of the station's other great locally produced music programmes on demand via KALW's online music player. Listen in whenever you like at KALW.org slash music. And you can also keep up with us on Facebook and via Twitter. And we love to hear from you, so please write to us at info at voicebox-media.org. For the next couple of Fridays, Voicebox will be taking a short break. But please don't go away. Listen in at the same time next week and the week after to hear Alan Farley bring you two instalments of his terrific Ira Gershwin documentary series. Voicebox will be back on April the 1st with more great new programming. So we'll see you then. I'd like to play us out now with a song by another great woman composer of the jazz era. Ida Cox. Here's Wild Women Don't Have the Blues, a sung by tonight's guest, Pamela Rose. Have a songful week. Hi there, this is Seth Samuel, the producer for Voicebox. This episode of Voicebox has been generously underwritten by San Francisco Performances, bringing you a recital by baritone Christopher Maltman and pianist Malcolm Martineau on Friday, March 18th at 8 p.m. at Herbst Theater in San Francisco. More at sfperformances.org or 415-392-2545. And I also hope you have a songful week. Wild women don't worry, wild women don't have the blues.